In Australia at the moment, one in two of every Australian's is dealing and living with a chronic disease. In fact, one in five of us have more than one chronic disease. We have some of the highest levels of obesity uh, in the OECD. And on top of all that, at the moment, we're seeing a new generation of Australians taking up vaping and we're seeing levels of smoking in young Australians going up for the first time in a generation. It would be very easy to think we've missed the boat. This is all too hard. We can't deal with it. But luckily in Australia, we have someone who's worked with the World Health Organization, elite institutions in North America and Europe, and has brought that expertise back to Australia where he grew up. We're going to hear from my guest today. Does he think we've missed the boat on Dr. Rama? You're listening to Dr. Rama with Steve Robson bringing you the best of health, medicine and people. My guest today will be known to many, many Australians. It's Dr. Sandro DeMeo. Welcome to Dr. Rama, Sandro. G'day, g'day. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you are a Melbourne boy originally. I am, yeah. You've worked around the world. What led you to go overseas and work over there? Oh, well, I was, so I trained and worked as a medical doctor at the Alfred Hospital. I went through Monash, um, always fascinated by health and the human body and um, was lucky enough to volunteer for many years with St. John Ambulance. And um, so medicine was a natural pathway for me in many ways. Um, but as I started to work as a doctor, I began to see a common theme across uh, remote communities major urban hospitals uh, in Sri Lanka after the Boxing Day tsunami where I did um, over a month of uh, humanitarian aid work uh, and in some work that I did um, as part of my Masters of Public Health in Cambodia. And the common element in all of these countries and settings and communities was that most of my patients were dying or experiencing really significant pain and suffering from a group of diseases that we knew how to prevent. That, you know, 90% of uh, patients uh, in Australia die from diseases that we know how to significantly delay or prevent, that, um, uh, you know, that number uh, is similar in many countries. And what really shook me in, many, in, in some ways was also that these are not diseases of affluence. In fact, they're diseases deeply linked with poverty, inequity and structural discrimination. So I decided instead of continuing to patch people up at the bottom of the proverbial cliff, I would try and climb to the top of the cliff and build a fence. And and that's what public health is. So initially I left um, after I'd finished my MPH and done uh, just a year and a half as a medical doctor. um, I left Australia and did what was going to be in the first instance, just a year overseas in Denmark. And I had the most amazing experience living in Denmark, a country with a similar GDP to Australia, but an obesity rate half to a third, uh, a country that you know, is so far ahead of the world and a region that's so far ahead of the world in many areas of health policy. And this really impressed on me the opportunity uh, and the fact that, it, that it's not too late and, and that there's a lot that we can do with the wealth and expertise and opportunity we have here in Australia. Um, that one year became three as I fell into a fabulous opportunity to do my PhD and run a national survey funded by the US government uh, in Mongolia. So I was suddenly 
collecting data across three and a half thousand households on chronic disease in Mongolia. I was there when the first fast food outlet opened. I uh, watched, literally watched as the country urbanized and as hunger reduced and, and chronic disease increased. Uh, and worked really closely with the WHO and the Ministry of Health and others to design and implement health policy um, as I lived back and forth between Mongolia and Denmark. Um, I then launched a social startup because I wanted to try and bring young people from around the world from all different sectors together in particularly emerging market um, major cities. Uh, so the idea was bring sort of non-health leaders together around wicked health challenges and chronic disease in emerging markets early in their career, create networks, multidisciplinary networks, um, and give them the skills of policy advocacy and, and communications to be able to, um, you know, break the, the, the ceilings that many of them were facing uh, in getting their issues across the line. Uh, that took me to Harvard for two years and then to the WHO headquarters in Geneva for three years. Um, uh, and finally, after three years of being a diplomat, I realised I'm not very diplomatic, or at least I wasn't at the time, um, and I was pretty impatient and uh, had a fabulous, you know, fabulous time with the UN, really privileged to work for an amazing boss um, in the nutrition and chronic disease team, led a Lancet series, designed, helped to design the United Nations Decade of Action on Nutrition, uh, and then uh, ended up going back to kind of my roots in the startup world and and running a global foundation fo focused on food systems transformation out of Northern Europe. Again, launched another Lancet Commission. Um, and finally, due to love and also some sickness in my family, uh, everyone's well now, but it was a bit hairy for a moment. Um, I made the, the return uh, back to Australia, and here I've been for four years running Vic Health. Sandra, that's an extraordinary story, and it, 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 it I think we'll tell our listeners just what an extraordinary background and, and experience you have. Before I move on, you've worked with the World Health Organization. I'm a big fan, but we hear critics around the world and um, calls to defund them or whatever. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience of working with them and, and why you think the World Health Organization is so important? Look, so really to understand why it's important, you need to understand a bit more about the WHO. And there are a lot of misconceptions. So the World Health Organization is a technical agency. It's, a, it's an agency that really guides, um, you know, the scientific and normative uh, areas of uh, medicine and health worldwide. So what does that mean? It means they produce guidelines. It means that they um, often bring together consensus, knowledge and expertise uh, to inform policies and to advise governments. Um, and they, they largely, you know, really largely they're a, they're a, um, a knowledge agency. Um, and this is quite different from some other agencies that, that often they work alongside, like UNICEF or the World Food Programme or um, uh, you know, other development agencies that are actually implementing agencies. So they have much bigger budgets, much bigger teams. They're on the ground, you know, doing more of the, the implementation work. WHO's role is really actually one of, of technical excellence and guidance. It's, it's about um, building the knowledge, uh, providing the, the um, understanding and enabling um, better decisions, better investments, and better outcomes. And they do that for uh, across three areas, health emergencies, health systems, and healthier populations. Um, the other thing that's important to understand is its governance. So 
the World Health Organization is actually governed by um, the uh, health ministers of the world through the World Health Assembly. So in, in some ways, this is, you know, in many ways, this is a really amazing uh, piece and an important piece of governance because it means that every country has one vote and that it's a very democratic, uh, democratically run uh, organisation, not without its problems like any organisation, you know, but, but certainly incredible strengths. Um, the downside, though, is that, of course, consensus takes time. And so, you know, as with most large organisations and particularly uh, international organisations, you know, it, it, things can take time because they don't want to get them wrong. And also um, they need to have the consensus of many countries that have different priorities. So, you know, the process of getting consensus across countries in a globalised and dynamic world as well as the outcomes are both really important. Um, and I, I strongly believe, you know, when you look at the idea that um, the WHO, you know, and it's 6,000 6, staff, which sounds like a lot, but they're responsible for the health of, you know, 7 billion people, um, they do extraordinary work. And, um, and they're in, you know, more than 100, 100, 100 countries around the world. Um, and they're often the kind of, you know, the silent... Um, uh, contributors uh, in the background uh, that maybe don't get as much airtime and and don't have the uh, uh, you know um, they're, they're not the implementation agencies so they're not always as visible uh, but certainly make a really really uh, important contribution and I think we saw that um, you know first and foremost uh, through the last few years and and the difficult um, you know, uh, you know, challenging uh, environment that that COVID presented, which was a mix of that kind of politics. Health is is inherently political uh, policy, uh, uh, and of course, um, expert guidance, which comes with uncertainty, as all science does. Yeah, absolutely, Sandra. So you've brought all of this expertise to an organisation called Vic Health, and a lot of people in other states uh, of Australia won't understand Vic Health. And its role. I wonder if in a, you could give us a brief description of what what it what it does and what its role is in Victoria's lives. Yeah, thanks very much. I mean, I, I often kind of say and truly believe. I think I have the best. Uh, I think we've actually we might have even said it to each other, Steve. At one point, I think I have the best uh, job in public health in Australia, and I think you said the same. And um, we we just had to agree to disagree. But um, I, I mean, Vic Health is a truly remarkable organisation, and I can say that because I had no involvement in its, in its establishment. I was just a few years old, in fact, when it was established. So it was established in 1987 through the Tobacco Act, and overnight in those days, um, you know, these were the days where you could smoke on aeroplanes, you could, you know, light up a cigarette in a, in a cafe or a restaurant or a theatre or pretty much anywhere you wanted. And overnight, tobacco advertising was banned across all of our arts, sports, social uh, cultural events but of course the you know big tobacco was a big sponsor of many of these they they were on the chests of our footballers they're on the, the the cars of our formula one grand prix teams and so to help those um events and organizations and sporting teams transition to a tobacco free uh, advertising world uh, the Government at the time decided to establish uh, an independent statutory authority, actually a foundation, because our full name is the Victorian Health Promotion Foundation. So they taxed tobacco, took a small amount of that taxation and what we call hypothecated it or earmarked it, uh, said it has to be, it has to go to this independent 
uh, agency. The agency has three members of parliament. Uh, we have three members of parliament on our board, one from Labor, one from Liberal, one from the crossbench. So it's a truly tripartisan, non-partisan uh, uh, organisation. We have lived experience and sector experts that make up the rest of our 14-person board. Um, and there are there's a piece of legislation that protects the organisation, its funding uh, and its and its work. And so what it means is that then for the last, well, over 35 years, VicHealth's been able to really systematically invest in a pipeline of world-class research and research institutions such that we have an incredible richness of public health research and researchers here in Victoria and Southeast Australia that VicHealth has been really critical uh, in, its, in establishing. We've been able to bring and help some really critical and important innovations like SunSmart and Quit and BreastScreen, um, you know, all come to Victoria uh, and all grow uh, and achieve scale and, and, and eventually be spun out as sustainable programs across Victoria. Um, and we've also been able to work really closely with government on a range of, health, of critical health issues, including, you know, most recently on um, the harms around e-cigarettes. But, you know, over the last 35 years, there have been a number of critical health and policy issues that we've been able to support government on. So we're quite a small agency. I always say, you know, we're run like a business. We have a culture like an NGO, but we are part, we're proudly part of government. Uh, I work for the people of Victoria, but I am appointed by the health minister. I report into a board and I have about 100 staff. So we're not very big. Um, but, you know, to have that, that, that funding um, protected by legislation that allows us to work on the long-term difficult structural drivers of poorer health outcomes uh, at the primary prevention end uh, is, is a truly, I think, brilliant piece of policy uh, infrastructure and, and innovative financing that even today, um, as we speak, other states are um, using as a blueprint for their own agencies. Uh, and since we're established, about 30 organisations around the world, including Tonga Health and Thai Health, the Singapore Health Promotion Board, Swiss Health, uh, were all um, actually modelled on us. We were the world's first health promotion agency, and I'm really proud of that uh, as, a, as an important contribution to health policy and, and health, health policy governance uh, for prevention uh, globally. Yeah, Sandra, you have a very, very, very big remit. I'm going to bring us back to where I started. We seem to be facing an overwhelming number of public health challenges that look daunting. Do you think it's too late? And um, have you got any anything really, I guess, to say to Australia's doctors about prevention? Well, look, I mean, I think it's the, um, the Chinese uh, adage of, you know, the best time to, to plant a tree is 10 years ago and the second best time is now. Um, maybe when it comes to prevention, I'd say 30 to 40 years ago, because that's the timeline over which we've seen a really rapid increase, uh, a global dominance of uh, chronic disease. But I think we have to remember that that's largely happened in a single generation. You know, we, we for the last, well, tens of millions of years, life expectancies for humans as a species have got longer. And in many countries, children today are the first generation in history ever to, to likely live a shorter life expectancy than their parents because of the increase in chronic disease 
you know, the, the globalization and commodification of our food systems, uh, you know, and, um, and, and the commercialization and the influence of the commercial world, both for good and for bad on many aspects of our health uh, and how they play out in the social determinants. The flip side of that, of course, though, is that if it happened, if it's all if it's all happened in thirty years, it can absolutely be undone in in thirty years, and and um, we've seen that with tobacco. You know, while there are more smokers on the planet today globally, and I, we have to remember that the war on tobacco is not over, and the tobacco industry is just finding new new products and new uh, ways to profit, largely in developing countries. You know, thanks to the really strong leadership here in Australia, world leading leadership of uh, you know, people like Mark Butler, but also Nicola Roxon and others, uh, we have been able to wind back the clock on the devastating uh, impact and, and, and harms of, of, um, of tobacco and cigarettes to achieve one of the lowest rates of smoking in the world. That, that, that didn't happen accidentally. And I can tell you, I, I reckon, you know, there would have been lots of people like Mike Daub and Simon Chapman and others who probably would have been sitting in the 80s and 90s and, not, you know, Nigel Gray, you know, and would have said, gosh, you know, is it possible to turn back the clock on something that was so normalised? I mean, we smoked on aeroplanes. It was crazy. And it's crazy now to think that only 20 years later we think it's crazy. So for me, you know, there are actually really great examples of um, public health challenges that had been completely ingrained and could have easily been seen as unsolvable that we have managed to solve here in Australia. I think the other part that gives me um, a lot of confidence is uh, that other countries are doing incredible things in other areas of health policy. You look at Chile and what they've done in food labelling and food pricing, Mexico with their sugar tax. You look at the UK with their ban on advertising on public transport. And all of these now have proof that they're making a difference in public health and that they're supported by the public and politicians largely are really proud of those uh, innovations. Um, you know, so we can learn from others. We've got a track history. And I think the third thing that gives me confidence is the incredible solidarity and also maturity of the public health community here in Australia. We are very lucky to have uh, a world-class community, institutions, individuals, leaders in government, but also in non-government organisations, and, and Steve, I've absolutely put you in that group as well. I mean, I think having these strong voices across the nation um, that, that are ready and rearing to support, um, you know, visionary and bold leadership from uh, and with Australian communities, but also with our politicians, I think actually it's a really exciting time in, in Australian public health policy. I think some very exciting things some very important and maybe even some world first things are going to happen in this country over the next five years. Um, and I'm really excited to, to, to play a small part and to be able to support that. Sandra, I've only really scratched the surface of what I want to talk to you about today. I want to thank you for talking to Dr. Rama. I'm hoping I can pin you down to talk to me again soon. 
With a name like Sandra de Maia, I get a sense food is very, very important to you from an Italian background. So I hope we can connect again and talk about the way that we nourish uh, ourselves across our lives. But thank you so much for joining me on Dr. Rama today. No, I I would love to come back and maybe we can even do it over a meal. (laughs) That sounds fantastic. All the best, Sandra, and thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Rama, a podcast produced on Ngunnawal country by the Australian Medical Association. All rights reserved.